as we continue our study in times like these, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read in chapter 3, but we're actually going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. You'll understand when we get there. The message is entitled, Helmet of Salvation, The Warrior's Mindset, How We Think in a Battle, in a Contest, has so much to do with how we do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding of your word, that you would equip us for every good work. Lord, I pray for those who are here that don't know you as their own personal Savior, that Lord, use the gospel the great grace that you've given us to touch their hearts and draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled and that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, Lord, that we might be stronger, that we might be more like you today and go from this place to be a reflection of your grace, your glory, and your love in the dark world that we're surrounded by. In Jesus' name, amen. The warrior's mindset Bible says in Ephesians 6, 17, when it's talking about the parts of the armor, and take the helmet of salvation. That's what protects our thinking. How we think. So we've looked in the last couple of weeks of how God sees a sinful culture in Isaiah 1. They were successful on every front. They'd expanded the kingdom. The king um, had had done a great job, and there was success everywhere. But God looked at them spiritually as a nation. He said, there's not a sound part in all of your culture. Everywhere I look are sores and bruises. There's a culture that God had founded, that God had blessed, and yet, just like Moses said they would do when they began to eat of the, the farms and the vineyards that they didn't plant and live in the houses they didn't build, then their heart would turn towards the blessing and away from the blesser. And they would begin to think they had to maintain it because after all, didn't they give it to themselves? That's the challenge. Then we looked at Isaiah 6. And we saw God as he is, the thrice holy, all-powerful creator that rules from his throne without challenge. And we see Isaiah's response to the presence of his physical holiness that here's the prophet, here's one of the good guys, but he saw himself as God sees him and he said, I am a sinful man. I'm a man about to be ripped apart. He saw those heavenly creatures. He experienced the presence of God and he thought, I'm, it's all over for me. I'm about to be destroyed because I'm a man of unclean lips that lives in the midst of a people with unclean lips. But God sent his messenger, one of those fiery seraphim, to get a coal from the altar and to place it on his lips. And he says, now you're cleansed. And his first response, his joyful reaction to being cleansed as he heard the voice of God say, who will go for us? Who will speak for us? Who can we send? And Isaiah's response, here am I. Send me. Now Isaiah administrated in a way over the demise of the culture. And God said, I'm going to send you to people that won't listen. But your commission is to faithfully preach the truth. 
And like his successor, Jeremiah, a lot of people said, oh, don't, you don't have to listen to those guys. We're going to continue in peace and safety. But he said, no, those are false prophets. They're false prophets. They say peace and safety. They're not preaching for me because God said, I'm going to dismantle this unholy nation. See, they went in to captivity, a nation that believed, well, they had a good God, but somebody ever, everybody else had their gods too. When God got done with them after the dispersion, they could say from their heart, there's one God, the Lord, O oh Lord, he's one God, and we're to worship him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. As a culture, that's what came out after the discipline. We see our own culture. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and following, when a culture, when a nation who is founded upon the principles of God, a nation that honored God, a nation that was blessed by God turns their back on God, what happens? It says in Romans chapter 1, when they did not really want to retain God as their God, God gave them over to twisted thinking, to reprobate thinking, to do those things which are sinful. He turned them over to their sin and said, okay, disintegrate. And we see that fall. In Romans chapter 1, how a culture that turns its back on God and worships the creator or the creature more than the creator falls apart. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is where the series came from, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian in any time, but especially in the last days. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, Arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power. Avoid men such as these. And he goes on. So as Christians, we can say, yep, that's where we're living. That's where we're at today. People don't recognize God. They're about themselves and their own pleasure. And it's difficult, so how do we react? Well, Paul's writing to Timothy here. And just to put it in context, in chapter 1, Paul says, Listen, Timothy, we didn't call ourselves. God called us. He's the one that saved us. He's the one that gave us the grace. He's the one that gave us the calling. He's the one that commissioned us. So, Timothy, I want you to remember the faith that was handed down by your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. Take me as your example. Take Onesimus, who is, who is not ashamed. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of my bonds. Don't be ashamed of me or of the gospel. And he says, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.7, Timothy, listen, timid Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind to be able to think disciplined. So don't be running here and there. You do what God has called you to do. We're called to be faithful in our time and our place. He says, Timothy, come to second chapter, verse 1. Be strong in grace. Be strong in grace. Not in rules, not in knowledge. Be strong in the grace. What is grace? Grace is that free gift that was given to us that we didn't deserve, that gives us the power and the desire to do the will of God. That's grace. It's free. You don't work it up. You can't earn it. It's free. He said, Timothy, be strong in that. And that which you have heard from me, you share with faithful men 
kind of like this. You know, we can get overwhelmed with the scope of the harvest field and all that there is to do for the Lord. He said, Timothy, you do your job. Train faithful men. That's the commission. Sometimes I'll be somewhere, and I remember in particular a couple times I was with some young pastors, and I was telling them how God has blessed us with this church of, of people that just loves to share the gospel and this, all the small groups that God has multiplied and all the individual ministry they do. And this one fellow got tears in his eyes. Oh, I'd give anything to have that. And so I said what Paul is saying to Timothy, find one. Just get one. Oh, no. Well, no. Uh, you see, the thing is, we have this thing we do. Every Saturday, we have this men's breakfast. And it's going nowhere, but we have it. And I said, so don't stop that. Do that, but find one guy. He said, but you understand, we got this Saturday thing we do, and they come every week. I said, yeah, keep doing that. Find one man. Couldn't get that because it was a Southern Baptist. We're used to shake and bake and the programs and, and getting the stuff going. And, and so we can have a whole bunch of people. Listen, God is interested in individuals, not just big groups of people. Find one faithful man, I told him, and pour your life into him. That's what Paul told Timothy. Timothy, don't be afraid about all there is to do. Train faithful men. Pour your life into them. Train them to be good soldiers, to endure hardness because you're going to have to be tough. Train them to be focused. A faithful soldier does not get entangled with affairs of this life, but only one thing, that he might please him who hath enlisted him as a soldier. Paul said, this one thing I do, no matter what your calling is to put bread on the table for your family, you have one commission, and that is to please Jesus Christ. He calls Timothy back to his commission, back to his responsibility. He said, Timothy, the farmer has got to eat what he, what's produced in the field. You've got to be first partaker yourself. What is that? That's the gospel. The gospel is not a method so that people don't have to go to hell. The gospel is what we need to be feeding on for ourselves every day because we never deserve God's grace. And about the time, what happens in our Christian life, it's, it's very subtle, but Satan plays on our flesh. We begin to think it's about what we know. And we think, begin to think we're better than other people. We can judge other people. And aren't they lucky to have me around because I'm just so spiritual? And we even start getting angry. And we think it's righteous indignation. We could be angry at the world. And so we have these different choices. And we talked about it last week. That when you see the culture falling apart, you can be afraid and run and hide. Some years ago, we used to take the young people. We didn't have a camp in those days. We'd take the young people down to Colorado. We'd rent some condos and we'd spend time in the word down there and then running around doing things you do in the summer on the ski slopes, riding bikes and enjoying God's creation. In our travels, I want to stop by. There's a fellow that I knew. He was older than me, but I'd known him. I think my dad had seen him come to Christ, and he was pastoring in Leadville, Colorado. So we stopped by the church building. Now, he didn't build this building, so we're not blaming him. But it kind of reminded me of how some Christians live in this world. I mean, it was kind of built like a fort. It was really small, so they didn't expect many people there. And there wasn't any windows that could open. There were just like slots, you know, the kind that as a cowboy you could punch your Winchester through and shoot at people through the slot, and they couldn't hit you very well. It was very dark in there. It reminded me of the edifice mentality that people can get when they're afraid of the culture and say, oh, 
We better run inside and just peep out through the hole and say, boy, it's bad out there. We better not go out there. Let's just keep our kids inside. We don't need to know those people. Those are bad people out there and have absolutely no effect on the culture. And yet Jesus has called us to be what? Salt and light. He says, if you hide your, your, your candle under a bushel, you put it under the bed, what good does it do? No, you put it up high so everybody in the house can have light. And if the salt is lost its savor, savor it's, it's, it's saltiness is not good for anything. We've got to be a part of the culture. We're in it, we're just not of it. You can listen to the radio commentators and get very angry about the decisions that the other parties that are not yours are making and while wow, this, this, this nation is just going downhill, it's terrible. You can sit around and be angry about all that all the time. But if you remember who you are and who you belong to, it makes all the difference in the world. You become a prepper. You know, become a prepper and, and hide out and get a bunch of stuff for you and your family. And then, again, affect, have no effect on culture. But the mindset of a warrior is found in Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them or cause them to stumble. There's so much that we can be offended, and sometimes as Christians, we just think we're supposed to be offended. We're supposed to be angry. And we're not. Tony Campola is a Christian author and speaker and he found himself in Hawaii. And because of the jet lag, he was up way early in the morning. And it was 3.30 in the morning. So he decided to just go down to this little diner that was close to his hotel and get a cup of coffee and a donut. So he was sitting there all by himself at the counter. And all of a sudden, 3.30, the doors burst open. Here came all the prostitutes. I guess they just got off of work or whatever they were doing. And they all gathered together to have some breakfast and coffee before they went to home to sleep the rest of the day. And Tony began to think, you know, I really should just get out of here, right? But then one of the girls said, her name was Agnes, said, hey, girls, it's my birthday tomorrow. And they all kind of mocked, said, oh, yeah, what should we do, Agnes? Should we have a birthday party for you? She said, yeah, why bother? I've never had one by myself before, so why start now? And he said, I think it was from the Lord. The Lord gave me a thought. So I just sat in my place and drank my coffee. And when everybody left, he said to the guy behind the counter, hey, why don't we show Agnes, why don't we have a birthday party for her tomorrow? Do they come in every night about the same time? Yep, every night, like clockwork, 3.30. Let's have a birthday party. And the guy said, that's a great idea. And so his wife was working too, this guy's wife, and she says, I'll bake a cake. And Tony said, well, I'm going to come in early and I'll decorate. So he got some stuff and they decorated the next night. Here they came. And they came in and said, happy birthday, Agnes. And she was overwhelmed. And they showed her the cake, and she just kind of froze. And she said, I, I've never had a cake before. Do we have to eat it? Could I just take it home? Could I just take it home? I'll come right back. I, I've never had one before. And they said, I guess. So she left, and they all kind of stood there looking at one another. And Tony said, hey, let's pray. And they went, okay. So they bowed their head, and he prayed for her salvation. He prayed that God would love her, show a wonderful day. And they got done praying, and the, the guy running the diner says, Hey, I knew her some kind of preacher. Where do you go to church? And he said, The Lord just gave it to me. He said, I go to the church that does birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. 
And the guy looked at him and he said, no, you don't, because if you did, I would go to that church. Right? We think somehow that God is honored with our attitude and our anger and our judgment of people. Like somehow, like the writer of James, James wrote, and he said, like you can determine who's worthy of the kingdom. So you, somebody comes in and you say, hey, sit down here. I don't want people to see what kind of, you know, hey, we don't want people thinking sinners go to our church. You sit here, and then the guy comes in with the big job and the big ring and the nice clothes. Oh, let's sit over here so everybody thinks this is what makes up our church, all these good people. And James says, you become a judge with evil intentions, thinking you determine who's qualified for the kingdom or not. That's not what the kingdom is about. It's about the poor people and the sinners, the people that know they're lost. That's what the kingdom's made up of. We can choose to be offended or we can have, make a difference in our world. We have the gospel. So we can walk around being angry and judging people or recognize that we're just sinners saved by grace. We don't have to be afraid. If we begin to actually see the world as Jesus sees it, the way he saw you. See, it doesn't, it doesn't judge people if you go to your brother that's having trouble with alcohol or drugs and say, listen, that's going to kill you. That's not judging. Hey, you're, you're in sin. What's going on? We want to we help. We want to restore you. But judging is when you look at somebody and say, well, they're always going to be that way. I'm not going to bother with them. And you pass final judgment on them. We don't want to be a church like that. We don't want to be an angry church. We don't want to be a fearful church that thinks somehow the, the, the world and all its sin is taking our little America away from us and our, and our nice house and all those things. But you say, well, pastor, I mean, if they keep passing laws, pretty soon it will be against the law for you to say sin is sin. Even though you're trying to help people, you, they'll, they'll, they'll come take your building away. Hey, news flash. This is all going to burn. This all belongs to God. So if us taking a stand and teaching and speaking the truth and love causes us to lose some stuff, then we can just be like our predecessors who gladly enjoyed the confiscation of their property and say, Lord, it's all yours. Because they can't take your salvation away and they can't take your victory away. The mindset of a warrior, unoffendable. I read a book. My, uh, my buddy Gary Garls is uh, my information feeder. That's his gift. For 26 years after he got saved, he's always calling me up and saying, Paul, have you read this? Have you listened to this? He sent me a book. You should read it. It's a blessing to me. I've read it twice. I'm going through it again. Simple little book. It's just called Unoffendable. Unoffendable. The Mindset of a Warrior, Unoffendable, by a guy named Brant, not Brent, Brant Hansen. You should read it. There's so many biblical applications in our life, and yet we walk around offended and angry at people instead of seeing what God sees as the creator, seeing the difference that God can make in a life. What would it be like, that enemy, that ornery neighbor, that ornery boss, coach, your nemesis, if all of a sudden God changed their heart and they became your brother in Christ, what difference would that make? You can't do that difference, but God can. 
But I think God wants to start looking at people that way with hope, not judgment. And in the book, he also pointed out, very hurtful, I thought it was very hurtful, that our heart is deceitful, not just the other Christians, our heart is deceitful. We really got no business judging. We think we know. We don't know. The Bible is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Who knows the heart of a man but the man himself? You think you do because you have experience, but you know what? You'll mess it up. Only God knows his heart. Only God does. So just leave off judging before you start. How about an attitude of righteous superiority? Does that help a lot? Verse 21 and 22, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What is that? That's a breastplate of righteousness. Now, in the book Undefendable, I love this illustration. Bran Hansen says about himself, Over the course of my life, I, Bran Hansen, have likely cussed far less than you. I probably exercise far more than you do. I'm likely far more discerning and conservative with my family's entertainment choices than you are. I've probably been drunk less than you zero times total in my life. I've likely done drugs less than you, again, zero times. I've probably done more to help the poor than you. I've probably been less promiscuous than you. I was a virgin when I got married and I've never cheated. I've likely smoked less than you and have worn more anti-smoking t-shirts. I probably have less debt than you since I am debt-free. I likely give away more money at a higher percentage than you do. I probably have less body fat than you do because I am more disciplined about eating good food than you are. I, am likely baptized, I have likely baptized more people than you have. And now here's the question, so be honest. How do you like me now? So he gives us a choice. A, I'm incredibly impressed, Brent. You're amazing. I want to hang out with you and be with someone as aspiring and clean and living as you so I can be like you. B, maybe you mean well, Brent, but I kind of like to punch you in the face. C, there is no kind of I want to punch you in the face. D, Seriously, Brand, I'm coming to punch you in the face. He says, personally, I choose C because I want to punch myself in the face hard. Brand's morally better than me. I'm a loser, just like I figured, great, you lost. What do I win? Truth is, and this goes for secular righteousness also, like bragging about buying your own carbon offsets or your sanctimonious bumper sticker. Precious few people are attracted to displays of moral fastidiousness. The breastplate of righteousness is for your protection from from Satan's fiery darts. It wasn't a weapon to beat other people over the head. Your protection is not a weapon. It just puts you in a position for God to use you to demonstrate his love and grace to people. Not to be that weapon the Holy Spirit can use can convict people. You're not the Holy Spirit, no matter how good you think you are. In fact, if this doesn't bother you, then I give you permission to doubt your salvation. If you want to be like that, no, no, no. Jesus wasn't even like that, and he was holy without sin. What did they accuse of him? Hanging out with sinners. What kind of a guy hangs out with sinners? With prostitutes. 
He was there at Simon the leper's house, probably healed by Jesus. He wasn't supposed to touch lepers, but when he touched them, they got healed. And a prostitute came in, and she was weeping over her sin and her loss, and she was washing Jesus' feet. And Simon thought in his wicked little heart, oh, if the, if the teacher only knew who was touching him, well, he'd get her out of here. And Jesus knew his heart, and he said, Simon, since I came in here, nobody offered me any water and nobody offered to wash my feet. But this woman, since I came, hasn't ceased washing me with washing my feet with her tears and wiping my feet with her hair. To whom much is forgiven, there is much love. He says in verse 23 following, he says, Listen, we're not supposed to be arguing. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrels. Where do the quarrels come from? From our wicked heart. We want to be right. And that's wicked. We think at somebody say, well, I've got that guy figured out. He needs to do this. That's wickedness. Because you really don't know his heart. And we write done on top of people when God's not done yet. And we miss out on the opportunity of seeing God change their life. And see what the difference grace will make. He starts in verse 24. And he says, the Lord's bondservant. Let's just stop right there. Are you the Lord's slave? Or are you in charge? Sometimes people get to a place of moral superiority and they just think they kind of know God's will and they can just tell everybody else what to do. No, the Lord's slave Lord's bondservant, we are ambassadors of the king. We're to be focused on our commission, just like Jesus. Matthew, in 12, Matthew 12, 20 said, A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment into victory. Jesus was focused. He didn't get distracted by political things going on. He was just focused on what the Father had sent him to do. Again, 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. So the servant of the Lord, the slave of Jesus, must be gentle. That's what kind means, gentle. That doesn't mean weak. It means power under control, gentle. Then it says, able to teach. We look at the armor in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. And those Roman soldiers would have cleats in the bottom of their footgear so they would have a foundation with which to move forward, even in difficult times, a foundation. Someone who's able to teach. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we're called, every believer is called to be an able minister of the new covenant, not of the law, not of the, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives what? Life. And it reminds me of what the old country doctor might have been like. Never experienced that, but I've read stories, right? Today we all have the internet, so we go in and we tell the doctor what's wrong with this, and I'm sure they go, oh, great. Another computer exit. I mean, what did, what did the doctor have to study for 10 years for anyway when you, all you had to do is Google it, right? But the old country doctor, 
because we didn't have computers, we couldn't Google. You'd, he'd come in, see you, and he'd look you over, probably take your temperature, and then he would reach into his bag and apply the medicine to your life. That's what every believer is called to do, to know the Word of God so you're able to bring healing. That's what the Word does. Now listen, some of them don't want the healing you have to give. You can't give what they don't want. And so we reach the reachable and teach the teachable. That's what he told Timothy, train faithful men. If they want it, you can give it to them, but you know you can't, you can't feed somebody who's not hungry. Only God can make them hungry. But we ought to be able to take the word of God and apply it to their hearts. Then he says, we're to be kind to all, able to teach, and then patient when wronged. God is supposed to build our heart that we become like great heart in Pilgrim's Progress. But we also got to develop some hide, right? Patient when wronged. When we talk about a horse that's bomb-proof, you cowboys know what I'm talking about. Bomb can go off, you know, in theory, and they're just going to stay there because they trust you and they know what their job is. They're bomb-proof, boom. And Paul said about a good soldier in Ephesians 6, having done all, sometimes all you could do is stand. When I was a soldier in the army, I rode horses for four years in the President's Honor Guard, and most of our duty was uh, cemetery duty, and it was a hot summer day one day, and I was riding, I was a sergeant in charge, and I was riding Big John, and Big John was big. He was a big horse. My parents happened to be visiting that day, and so they're watching all this going on, and Big John, we just, when, when I, I would lead the caisson to the front of the chapel, and when I turned around and dropped my salute, they would stop that caisson on a dime, and they would hold it very still. I'd be very still because those soldiers that were loading the casket it would have their feet right under the big metal wheel. So if a horse took off, be some damage done to soldiers. And so they had to be very still, and they were very, you know, you've seen it, very, very mechanical and very careful in how they did everything. Well, about that time, a little breeze which is very unusual in Washington, D.C. In the, in the summertime because we were just sweating and it was hot. And this little breeze just started blowing this little tiny piece of paper across the pavement at John. And big John didn't know what it was. And so he snorted out his nostrils and went, huh, and he went down a little bit and he looked at that paper coming at him. And I was talking quietly to John. I said, John, you just got to stand, man. Just stand, stand, John, stand. The colonel's watching us, and they'll get rid of me. If anything goes, we can't, we can't have a rodeo right now, John. Just stand. And then it blew a little closer, and, and John went, and he started some more, and he went down a little bit lower. Pretty soon, this big, tall horse, my heels are about on the ground. And I wonder what my parents were thinking. Wow, do they do this every time? That's kind of cool. The horse gets down there like this. And then the breeze blew the little piece of paper right up to John's nose. And he went, just paper. I don't know what you're worried about. He stood back up. And I was like, oh. But he didn't explode. See, he stood. He stayed there. In our life, sometimes those things are coming at us. And, and we do have fear, don't we? To be honest, to be nice, say, I never have fear. But we do have fear. 
but we keep our eyes and we keep listening to our Savior. And he just says, stand, stand, be patient when wronged. Yes, people are going to offend you. Even Christians are going to hurt you, and they're coming from the blind side because you didn't expect it coming that way. Just stand. Just stand. People come, and they're expecting sympathy, and they say, oh, I got hurt by church. What would you expect? You know, that's like, that's like some big football player coming to the coach. Coach, <laughs> I got a bruise today. Coach is like, it's football. Maybe you should turn your pads in because you're not a football player, right? We're involved in battle. And sometimes there's friendly fire. So you get a little injured. It'll be okay. Right of Hebrews says, you've not yet resisted unto blood and you're striving against sin. You've got to keep your heart soft by walking with the Lord, but you've got to develop some hide if you're going to be in this business. This is not an easy business. You've got to be tough. And we don't want to get hard and bitter, but we want to develop some hide. Verse 25, with gentleness, again that word gentle. Correcting those who are in opposition, the King James says, who oppose themselves. Why would it say it that way? Because if you're trying to minister grace to people and they're against that, they're hurting themselves, right? They're in opposition to themselves. So don't take it so personal and say, well, he didn't like me. I gave him the gospel, and so I'm not talking to him anymore. Understand what you're dealing with. The best horse trainers are those that really understand what? The horse. And if you're going to train a horse, you have to be smarter than the horse. So when you're in the business of the gospel, you want to use gentleness. So you're not just driving people away. Yeah, they're not going to react the way you think they should react. Because they're caught in Satan's trapped. I don't know if you've, happened this, if you've ever happened this before, but come across an animal that's caught in a trap. And maybe the trap was intended for a coyote, but it got somebody's pet dog or a little kitten in there and they're trapped in there and you say oh this is terrible and so you think well I'm going to go help the little animal out of the trap and they turn your hand to ribbons why because they're in pain you didn't inflict the pain and you're like hey I didn't do this to you the devil did this to you but they're not understanding that you're just in pain and so you may have put some gloves on but you gently what you gently try to heat help them from hurting themselves anymore, and you release them from the trap. He says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, this is an important doctrine right here. You can't fix anybody. I know you think when you speak, it's apples of gold and pictures of silver, and everybody's just waiting for your golden words but the truth is no matter how good you talk if God's not preparing the heart it just falls on deaf ears doesn't it God's the one that grants repentance so our ministry should be praying waiting on the Lord and then speaking exactly what he has us to speak speaking the words of the gospel because that is the power of God into salvation but be patient 
Did you always do before you were a Christian what you were supposed to do? And even after you came to Christ, when you were a baby Christian, you never messed yourself? No. There's no babies born like that. He said, be gentle. Keep praying for them that God might grant them repentance. Oh, don't you want to be in the business that God's in? Don't you want to be in the business seeing what God is, not what you can do, what God is doing? And then he might release them. And what happens when, when God grants them repentance, verse 26, they come to their senses. I mean, you can explain the gospel as good as you can explain it, and if the Holy Spirit's not working, they just don't get it, and they just turn and spit at you. I hate you. Don't speak about that Jesus anymore. And you go, whoa, I guess I didn't do a good job explaining it. Listen, it's important that you explain the gospel clearly. Don't change it. Don't try to make it more palatable. They won't get it anyway. What you'll be teaching is a false gospel. But if you give them the gospel, Paul said, don't be ashamed of it. Romans 1, 1, 16 and 17. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's what God uses. And then when God grants them repentance, they wake up, they return to their sense, and they go, whoa, did you see that gospel? What? Well, changed my life. And you said, yeah. And you're taking the blood off your hands when you were trying to get them out of the trap before, Right? All of a sudden, they see it all clearly, and they want to go tell their friends. They say, you got to meet Jesus. What do their friends do? Ah, you're nuts. You've been drinking the Kool-Aid, too. Just get out of here and leave me alone. And what do you tell them? Listen, be patient. That's what you were like before, too. Be patient. Think about the Apostle Paul. That guy was literally a terrorist to the church, killing people, killing Stephen. He was responsible for Stephen's death. He wanted everybody to know, I did that when he was unsaved. And God met him on the road and totally changed his life. What did God see? Before Paul was born, even while he was a terrorist, Paul saw a minister to the Gentiles. That, that, that Jewish fellow that hated Gentiles. That Jewish fellow that hated everything that wasn't Jewish. He was going to change his heart. They come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Listen, about the time you think, hey, we're surrounded here. We used to live in this Christian country, and now it's getting to be very few, and we're going to lose everything. Listen, first of all, remember, it's all going to burn. We don't believe in the Big Bang Theory, but we do have a Big Bang Theology, do we not? What does it go like? Well, it goes like this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, 11, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, Big Bang, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are there and shall be burned up. Now, seeing then that all these things will be dissolved, what are your priorities now? You know what our priorities are? To please the Lord and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while your salvation costs you nothing, your Christian life will cost you everything. But you know what? It'll be worth it all. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Whatever we suffer in this world, Bible says, cannot be compared to the weight of glory that we will enjoy in heaven. You can't compare it, whatever you suffer now. 
That's a promise from God. In ending, verse 1, chapter 2, it says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Brant Hansen says this, After a lifetime of carefully measuring everyone's actions, comparing ourselves to them, observing people to make sure they're not getting away with anything and just generally trying to control and evaluate everything, well, it's quite a switch. And it can sure be offensive. I work so hard and they get paid the same as me. I mean, the guy on the cross gets to steal from people and party and who knows what and suddenly he's going to paradise. It takes, it takes childlike humility to embrace the love of God, to realize how unfair it is, and then add quickly, but I'll take it. Because you didn't deserve heaven. I didn't deserve grace or salvation. Brand has this last illustration I'll share with you. It's a powerful one. I love it. Brand says, I was not an athlete. I lettered in sports, but that's because I was the manager and because... I, I did stats, and they wanted me to do the stats, but I was not an athlete. And he said, my little boy's not an athlete either, but he wanted to be in flag football. So when I showed up that day at the, where they were, had all the teams, I was the only parent. And a little kid said to me, hey, coach, can we play catch? And he says, I'm not the coach. He told my, I told my wife before, I'm not going to be the coach. I'm not the coach, so don't call me the coach. The little kid says, well, listen, can we just call you coach today? He said, okay, and he came home with a bag of balls, and he was the coach. And they lost every game. Till the last game came, and they were playing the yellow team. Now, the yellow team, all the coaches had matching visors. They had the sunglasses, the clipboards, the matching outfits, and they were killing everybody. And Brand said, I knew we were just going to get creamed. And then the kickoff. And the one athlete on our team ran it all the way back for a touchdown. He said, I began to walk up and down, say, we could do this, fellas. We can do it. And we lost 77 to 6. And the Rams, his team, were just downhearted. And they're walking around, licking their boots, head down. And then a white stretch limo pulled up along the field. A limo with flags, Rams flags. Everybody stopped and stared. The Rams, the playoff-bound yellow team, everybody. And a mom says, guys, it's time for your end-of-the-season party. And the Rams went from dejected losers to royalty, just like that. They were smiling and laughing and jumping up and down. They piled into the limo, and they went off for a big pizza and a swim party. The yellow team, coaches and all were in awe. This is how the kingdom of God works. The last or first, the first or last. And in the end, as much as we want to think our performance is all that matters, the victory has exactly nothing to do with us. We're human. So we're going to occasionally feel threatened. It happens. Anger happens too. So do jealousy, bitterness, and resentment. But if you want to be a citizen of this other kingdom, the one in which God promises things will be set right in the end, you may as well remind yourself of it all the time. The things you think matter so much, they don't matter so much. In the end, you're all free to, free to fail, kids, because here's a sweet thought. The limo is coming for you anyway. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you that we are saved by your grace. We are protected and provided for. We are children of the King. 
And we don't have to walk around angry or fearful. Because you've promised the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And that's not a weapon of war. That's a protection, Lord. We stand on the outside with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the power to save. Lord, help us to have this mindset. That you've already won the victory. We get to be a part of it. We get to see people come to Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the mindset to go forth and love people. To go forth in humility because it's not about us or our performance. It's about your great grace. And Lord, I pray that we would just become transparent in our humility that all that could be seen is Jesus Christ. And we give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.